welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. You remember the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I don't know if it's still on or not, but uh, here's the story. One day there was a contestant, and uh, she made it all the way to the last question. And if she answered it correctly, she was going to win a million dollars. But if she was wrong, she'd only go home with $25,000, only $25,000. Well, as she suspected, that million-dollar question was no pushover. It wasn't going to be an easy question. The question was this. Which of the following species of birds does not build its own nest? but instead lays its eggs in the nests of other birds. Is it A, the condor, B, the buzzard, C, the cuckoo, and D, the vulture? Well, the woman was on the spot. She didn't know the answer, and she was doubly in trouble because she'd already spent her two other lifelines. She'd done the 50-50 lifeline and done the poll the audience lifeline. All she had left was the phone a friend lifeline. And the woman that she had kind of set up wasn't, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer or the brightest crayon in the box. She really, she felt bad about, you know, saying no to her friend, so she just said yes to her friend, but she had a problem now because she desperately needed her friend to to give her the right answer. So being stuck, having no alternative, she decides to phone her friend. And without any hesitation, her friend says, that's easy. The answer is see the cuckoo. Well, now what do I do? She thought. Because again, her friend's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And so she was like going back and forth. But since her friend was so confident in the answer, and she had no clue, she decided to go for it. And so she said with trepidation, see the cuckoo? Is that your final answer? Yes, that's my final answer. The answer is, see the cuckoo. You've just won a million dollars. Well, she was excited and overjoyed and the balloons and confetti come down and and as the excitement began to cool off, she was still on the phone with a friend and said, friend, I got I to gotta be honest with you, I doubted you. I wasn't sure if you had the right answer or not, but I, you came through in the clutch. I'm so impressed with how smart you are. I, I'm just so amazed. To which her friend replied, no problem. It's easy, since everybody knows that cuckoos don't build their own nests. They live in clocks. Having the right answer to the question is vitally important. See how I just made that transition? See how I made that work? Pretty slick, I know. But it's true. It is important that we have the right answer to the question. That's true if you're on a game show hoping to win some money. It's true if you're writing an exam in school. It's also especially true if your wife looks at you and says, do these pants make me look fat? That's really important. So it's important that when we're faced with the challenges of life, when we're faced with these difficulties, that we have the answer. You see, in many ways, every day is a test of sorts. Every day, we're being faced with a question, and what will be my answer? How will I choose to respond in that moment? And that will determine the outcome of it. You see, Joy and I, we've, we've raised our kids largely on a series of mantras. And one mantra that we use over and over again with our kids is the one that says this. It says, life is about choices, and choices have consequences, so make good choices. And, and at the risk of, of sounding reductionist, I think really what it comes down to is that life is that way. Life is not about choosing the right behavior, but more importantly, choosing who will I trust and who will I depend upon. 
Do I trust in my own wisdom, my own knowledge, my own insight, my own intellect, my own strength, which is being corrupted? Or do I trust in the power of Jesus? Do I trust in his life? Do I trust in his ability, in his wisdom, in his knowledge that now is inside of me? And, and it's understanding, this understanding that that's what the life comes down to, trusting either in myself or in trusting in Jesus, that I think allows us to look beyond just the, the surface uh, problems that we all face. See, when, when people come into my office with counseling problems, I already know ahead of time what the answer is. The answer is Jesus. He's the answer to all of our struggles. The, the question is, really, what is the problem? What is it that we're struggling with? And how is Jesus the answer to all that? Or, or let me put it another way, how does the gospel and the power of Jesus and what he's done on the cross that has made me into a new person, has now empowered me with his life, how does that apply to this unique situation? Why is, why is he a better alternative than trusting in my own strength and my own power? And, and the answer simply is in John 15, 5, Jesus says, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Meaning that in our own strength and our own power, no matter how good it looks, no matter how powerful it may seem, it really is powerless. It really has no strength to it. Or you have Proverbs 3, verses 4 and 5, where, where the instruction there is to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your own strength, your own power. Instead, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So that's what we want to understand. That's what I think Paul is trying to, to tell his readers, the importance then of not trusting in the flesh, not trusting in our own strength, but rather trusting in the life of Jesus. So let's read our passage that we're going to look at this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. Paul says this, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, as we, we study your word and we, we get to discover what, what this instruction, what this, this insight is all about, we're going we're gonna to practice what you've told us to do, which is to not trust in our own strength, not trust in our own understanding, but we're going to rely on you, Jesus. We invite you to be the teacher. We invite you to lead and to guide the discussion this morning and that you will, you will put on my heart exactly what it is you want to say. But then through your Holy Spirit, you would open up our eyes and we would see the strength and the power. Why life is always better with you. Well, you are really the answer that we all need. And I pray that each of us, after listening to this message, will be reminded every time we face a challenge, every time we face a, a choice, to be reminded of how important it is to rely and trust on you. We thank you, Jesus, for how much you love us, for all that you've done for us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we, we commented at the beginning of this chapter in chapter four that Paul is writing in these, these last three chapters of the book like a good father. Like a good father where he's instructing his readers in terms of how they are now to live. 
what they're to do and how they face the challenges of life. And, and he's going to describe the character. More than just giving a, a series of, of do's and don'ts, he's describing the character that is true of them because of their new hearts, because of the new spirit that God's giving to them on the cross. And since, since they're new, since they're saints, since they're children of God, what does it mean to walk with Jesus? And, and what is that good path that God's leading us along? That's essentially what he's describing to us. So let's start in Ephesians 4 and verse 17. Paul said this, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. First thing I want you to see here is that Paul's not just giving us his opinion. Instead, what he's doing is he's making it clear that this is from the Lord. He's affirming this. This is, this is sort of like pay attention. This isn't just an idea. This isn't just a concept that I'm thinking about. This is something that Jesus is inviting us to. And he's inviting us in terms of how we're to walk. Now, before we go any further, I know there's some recovering legalists out there. And I don't want to mention anyone by name because I don't want to embarrass Crystal or Sue or anyone like that. So we're not going to do that. But I know there's many recovering legalists out there. And the moment you come across a command in the Bible, you automatically, or by default, you begin to, to look at those commands and think, well, now this is what I need to do. And, and if I don't, then, oh, oh, I'm in trouble. And you're very quick to turn any command into another law, into another standard, as if God is standing there with a clipboard in his hand and sort of evaluating and judging you, right? So I want to be really clear on the outset that this, what we're going to look at is not about impressing God. It's not about earning favor from God. It's not about earning acceptance or, or determining if you're loved or if you're good enough or, or any of that. Instead, he's like a good parent. He's like a good parent offering to us instructions. And, and these instructions, really, what their point is and what they're for is to lead us and to guide us in order that we'd experience life in him rather than choosing to not follow him and experiencing death and misery as we go our own way. See, I think that's what the, the writer, the, the teacher in Proverbs, in cha Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 to 22, this is what he wrote. He said, my son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them, and health to all their body. You see, that's what it's about here. That God wants us to make these good choices, again, knowing that choices have consequences. And, and so we need to make these good choices because that's going to determine whether I experience the good consequences or the bad consequences. Not judgment from God. No, no, God's not, he's not interested in judging his kids that way. That's not what it's about. Instead, what it's about is I want you to choose healthy. I want you to make good choices so you reap the benefit of that and not reap the destruction or the misery or the emptiness or the despair that comes with choosing from walking after the flesh. So that's what this is about. It's about experiencing life and death. And the command that he's giving, Paul's about to give, in terms of how we walk, is really two-part. And to, this morning, we're going to look at the first part about how not to walk. And then next week, we'll get into the second part. But essentially, the first part is this. Don't walk or don't live like the world. That's it. That's really what it is. Don't live like the world. Now, here in the passage, he uses the word Gentiles. And Gentiles doesn't only mean to non-Jewish people. Here, Paul's using the Gentiles in a, in a sense of just referring to, to anyone who doesn't have Jesus. In our, in our Christianese language, we would say these are unbelievers. 
but they're really just people who don't possess God and God doesn't really possess them. And so they don't have Jesus. That's what he's referring to with the Gentiles. And in other parts of scripture, Paul refers to this group of people as the world. And to explain why these, the world is such a poor role model for us, he's going to explain this really in three parts. So the first part of the passage basically breaks down to all about explaining the state of those who don't have Jesus. What do these unbelievers, what does the world look like because they don't have Jesus? And then he's going to explain why they don't have Jesus, why they're in that state. And then finally, the third part of it is how they live as a result of being in this state. So that's kind of how the passage breaks down. So we're going to start with that first part, which is understanding the state of the, of the world, the state of the unbeliever. And so let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, and look at it, because he's given us kind of three descriptions for us. So again, he says in verse 17, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Why? Because number one, they're in the fu- they walk in the futility of their mind. Number two, being darkened in their understanding. Number three, excluded from the life of God. So let's break that down. Let's start with understanding what does that mean that they're, they're walking in the futility of their mind. Well, you often hear in our world that knowledge, this phrase, knowledge is power, and that we just need to get smarter. And if we could just somehow get smarter, then that would finally solve all of the world's problems and everything would, would go away. Right, So we just need to listen to the experts, the smart people, and if we do, then the environment will get healed, the COVID, homelessness, mental health, the economy, food security, unwanted nose hair. All of those problems will magically get solved. We just need smart people, the right program, and the right political solution. And if we can just somehow get that, that concoction figured out, everything will go fine. And yet the reality is, Nothing seems to change. And it, and it doesn't matter who the experts are. It doesn't matter who's in power. We have the same problems over and over and over again. And the reason is because the world is stuck in this endless loop of battling political philosophies as if that's somehow the answer. Think about it. Do, is the answer that we just need to have more individual freedoms and responsibilities, which rewards hard work and determination, such as what the capitalistic system offers? Or do we need a more collective response where everyone gets the same thing to avoid the the inequality of outcomes that often comes from capitalism with something like socialism or communism? Which of those two extremes do we need? Is the answer to identify individuals based on their own personal actions and merit? Or do we group people based on how they've been victimized in this world, based on things such as their gender, race, skin color, family of origin, and sexual preference, as what critical theory teaches us? For example, under critical theory, when you apply it to race, it teaches that all, pe- all white people are colonial racists. Hence why we have systemic racism, because the whole system was created by these colonial races. And therefore, it can't be anything but racist. And therefore, the only answer is for the colonials to be quiet, to to give up any kind of power to those who've been marginalized in the past. And that will allow this racist system to be torn down and be replaced by something else. Is that the answer? Again, it, it really doesn't matter. Because Paul calls this way of living, where we're looking to political solutions, where we're looking to to changing behaviors, he calls living this way futility. 
And again, it doesn't matter whether it's left or right, if it's capitalism or communism or any kind of ism. See, the problem isn't the ism. The problem isn't the structure. The problem is the hearts of people. And so this word futility means it's, it's vain. Kind of like vanity of vanities, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes said. It's, it's empty, it's devoid of truth and devoid of power. Meaning no matter how effective that system is put into place, it'll never work. It's about as effective as a butterfly trying to fly in a straight line in a tornado. You know, I was going to say it's about effective as a fart in a windstorm, but I thought that would be rude. So I opted not to say it. That one's for you, Sean. I think you know what that's all about. Inside jokes. Nice to have sometimes. So again, the, the problem isn't the ism. The problem is really, it comes down to the hearts of us. You see, that's going to bring us to the second one. The second reason that Paul says this doesn't work. So the first one was the futility of their mind. The second one is they have a futility of mind because they are darkened in their understanding. Another translation used the word blinded instead of darkened, meaning that the world can't see the real issue. They can't see what the real problem is staring in front of them, which is why they think that they can just learn and grow out of it. They just need more knowledge and understanding, just another political fix. The problem is all of those fixes are too weak because it's not behavior-based. The problem is our hearts. The problem is the heart of the world. And so when you try to fix the problem of a heart issue with a behavior fix, it's about as effective as a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. It doesn't accomplish anything. Listen to how the, the prophet Jeremiah put it. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, he says this, The heart of man is more deceitful above all else. It is desperately sick. It is desperately wicked, another translation says, meaning it's terminally ill. It's beyond cure. Who could understand it? Or, or listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 23. He says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks, but became futile. There's that word futility. And became futile in their speculations, futile in their efforts. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So Paul's saying here that, that man, his problem is that his heart is dark. His heart is sick. And, and there's no fixing this heart through behavior. There's no treatment to fix this problem. The case is terminal because what he's done is he's traded in God for himself. He's traded in God for this world to lead him. And it's never going to work. And, and so mankind trying to fix his own problems is, is like essentially letting the inmates run the prison or, or letting the fox who is, you know, hopefully we can reform the fox, but while we're trying to reform the fox, it's in charge of the hen house. Both of those illustrations don't end well because the nature of, of the problem is deeper than the behavior, which leads us to the third and the biggest description that Paul gives of the state of the unbeliever, the state of the world. He says they're walking in their futility, they're darkening their understanding and, and their heart. And he says it because they're excluded from the life of God. 
Excluded here means to be estranged, to, to be alienated. They're not participating in. They don't possess or have the life of God. In, in, in 1 John 5, 12, the apostle John put it this way, that he who has the Son has the life, has the life of God. But he who does not have the Son, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have the life. You don't have any life, really. I mean, you got a, you got a physical life, but you don't have the spiritual, divine, Zoe life of God. And so that means that all of mankind, apart from Jesus, the world, the unbelievers, that they are under the reign of death, they're under their dominion of sin. That controls them. And that's why their heart is, is, is in such bad shape. Meaning, if they're experiencing and they're under death, how do they offer life? They have no life to offer. All they can do is offer up more death. The best they can do is dress death up, which is basically offering to you a beautiful, elaborate, ornate, expensive casket. That's all they can do. Or, or offer to you the best, shiniest, brightest plastic fruit for you to eat. That's all this world can offer. More death. May look good, but it's still death nonetheless. That's the best it can do. So you think about like something like John chapter 6, verse 63, the flesh, the world profits nothing. So that's the state of the world without God. Walking in the futility of their mind, darkening in their heart and their understanding, without life and without satisfaction. So why is the world in this state? If that is their state, why are they in that state? Well, Paul told us this in Ephesians 4, verse 18. He says that being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. So you see there's two because, right? So there's really kind of two parts to all this, right? The reason they're in this is twofold. Number one, it's the resulting of their ignorance, meaning they're ignorant. They don't see the real spiritual problem. They don't see their own hearts. They, they look at themselves in the mirror and think, I'm not that bad. I'm okay. When the reality is they're apart from God, they're sinners. That they're, 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 they're self-centered in their nature. That's what they are. They're ignorant to the fact of their plight and how Jesus is the answer to them. And number two, they've hardened their hearts to Jesus. They've resolved themselves to their present continual rejection of him as their Lord. At the continual rejection to Jesus being their Savior. And what's interesting is that that problem began in the garden. It, the problem began when Adam ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and plunged all of mankind into this state. We didn't choose to be in this state to begin with. That happened in the garden. However, it remains today for those in the world because they choose that way. Because they are presently continuing to reject God's plan of salvation because they don't want it. And so they, they choose to reject it because they choose to reject it for no other reason. They can't blame God. They can't blame anyone else. They've hardened their own hearts. They only have themselves to blame. So they're the one that's choosing to stop the life of Jesus in coming into the lives. They're the one that's stopping to, uh, to experience his life and therefore are left to experience all what this world can offer. 
Listen to how Paul put it in Romans 10, 21. He says, all day long, I've stretched out, God says, my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Meaning God's saying, come, choose life. I want you to choose life. But they're not choosing life. Or, or through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, cast away from all your transgressions which you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. I, I want all to come to salvation, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. But the world has said no to God. The, girl, the, the, the world has said, basically, I, I reject God and his ways because I know better. I can find life on my own terms. And so they're in that state for no fault of their own, but their own. They, they chose to be there, and they're choosing to be there. And so they're in that state by their own choice. So how do they now live? What does it look like? What is it that the Apostle Paul is telling us not to live like? And, and basically, their life is one of living after the flesh. You see, they can't go to God to find life. They can't receive life from Him and, and that love and that acceptance. And so they're in that, that, that state of rejection, and they're looking to find life in their own terms. I, I, would, I would describe it this way, that they're living according to the flesh. That's when someone is looking to find life to satisfy themselves through their own efforts and what the world can offer. Let me read that again. Living according to the flesh is when someone is looking to find life, to satisfy themselves through their own efforts and what the world can offer. But remember, what can the world offer? It can only offer more death. And so this will, this will take on kind of three forms. Number one, we try to find what we need. We need love. We need acceptance. We need approval and worth and significance. We need belonging. Every one of us need all these things. And we try to find it through our performance. We dress the right way, drive the right car, listen to the right music, uh, like the right TV shows and the right movies, follow the right uh, celebrities on Twitter. We need to talk the right way. Be part of the popular group, the right group. And so in order to do that, we, we put on the right mask to hopefully fit in and be accepted and make all this happen. And if I can just be part of that right group and I can gain their approval, then maybe I'll be okay. Or, or maybe, maybe I think I can find that life through earning it through my performance, through doing good works, working really hard, be kind to other people, to, to be successful in my career, in my job, to, to have a family. Maybe it's certain religious works, serving with a local charity, giving money to the disadvantaged, all kinds of good things. Please understand, it's not about the kind of behavior that matters here. You see, the problem is the, it's the motive and the nature, the source of the behavior. And in the world's way, they'll do all those good-looking things for the wrong motive. Meaning that the motive is, is not so altruistic, it's not so sacrificial it really comes back to being about ourselves. Let me give you an example. I remember, I remember after Hurricane Katrina hit. Remember Hurricane Katrina many years ago wiped out New Orleans. And in a matter of 24 hours, people lost their homes, they lost their cars, they lost their, their, their treasures, their heirlooms, their possessions. They lost everything 
seemingly overnight. And, and people all across America, including people in the opposite corner in Seattle, Washington, were devastated that maybe this could happen to them. I mean, it wasn't so much they were devastated for what happened to the people in New Orleans. They were thinking, what if this happened to me? What would I do? And so they were, they were noticing a lot of people were losing hope. A lot of people were experiencing depression because of what happened and what they're witnessing to others. Well, I remember sitting in an airport uh, waiting for a flight, and they had CNN on, and, and the host was interviewing a psychologist about this phenomenon, about people in Seattle struggling. And the host asked the psychologist, what do people need to do? And without missing a beat, the psychologist said, well, this is what people need to do. They need to help other people. Because in helping other people, you feel better about yourself. What's the motive? What's the motive to help other people? Oh, sure, it is in part to help other people, but really what it is is so I can feel better about myself. And so there's that self-centered nature to it. And so it isn't about the morality of the work. It's about the source. And again, the flesh can profit nothing. The flesh isn't able to show that sacrificial love. Only God can. And so when those good-looking works, good-looking good works don't work anymore. They don't, they don't satisfy. We're not able to have our performance good enough to, to, to merit and earn that love. Then we get a little bit more desperate. And then we start looking at things that aren't so moral and so upright. We begin to shade and, and, and color outside the lines a little bit. Tell it just a few little lies to get ahead. Or, or maybe we, we sabotage a coworker in order to get that promotion. We, we look from love from someone that's not really our spouse. And maybe through adulterous relationships or infidelity. Maybe we cheat on the government. We don't pay the taxes that we, are, we need to in order to save a little bit extra money so we can afford those fancy cars or those fancy trips so that we look a little bit better. Whatever it takes in order to, to find life, to find that worth and acceptance and approval and love, whatever we need to do, it just, again, it's by any means necessary. And so we're trying to perform for it. And then, and then when that doesn't work, now, now we need to protect ourselves. We need to make sure we don't lose what little, little love, little acceptance we think we have. We don't want to get hurt. We don't want to get rejected. And most certainly, we don't get, want to get exposed. Because if, if you knew what I know, if you saw what I'm struggling with, if you saw the real me, if you saw my heart, if you see the, me the way I see me, I'd get called out. I'd get embarrassed. You would leave me, you would reject me, and I'd be all alone. And so what I need to do in that moment now is I've got to protect myself. And I do that trying to control. Control other people so they don't hurt me. Control the circumstances so I don't fail. I don't get overwhelmed. I don't get hurt. It means I control my family, my kids. Control my boss. I do everything I can to try to control things. Because I can't fail. Because if I fail... I'll get ridiculed. If I fail, I'll have more evidence as to why I'm such a loser. Maybe I use anger. I use anger to shut down other people so they don't hurt me. They don't expose me. Or I blame other people. Shift the blame. Blame my parents. Blame my kids. Blame my, my spouse. Blame my friends. Blame the fact that I don't have a spouse. 
just shift the blame on anyone. Blame God. Again, it's all about trying to protect myself. Or maybe I need to just pull away from other people. Because if I create enough distance, number one, you, you can't reach me and, and touch me and hurt me. But number two, you, you can't see really all my flaws. You don't see me in high definition anymore. You don't see me up close. So, so then I'll, I'll be okay. So that I'm around you, but not, not so close to you that you reject me. When I can't perform well enough, and I can't protect me at myself from all the hurts, because I still feel them, then the last thing that, that the world offers me is just to numb and comfort the pain. And so I, I escape. I, I, I Netflix and chill. I booze. That just sounds worse than drink alcohol, doesn't it? I booze. Emotionally eat, emotionally snack, gaming, pornography, drugs, tubs of ice cream. I know that's under emotionally eating, but it's just too cliche, right? Chips, cookies, eat too much in a meal, whatever it is. Again, it's not about the behavior. See, some of those things are necessary. Eating is necessary. It's important. It's not about the behavior in itself. Really, the issue is how we're turning to those things. We're hoping that food, we're hoping that sex, we're hoping that drugs, we're hoping about you know, pornography, whatever it is, will somehow comfort me. Somehow make me feel better in the moment. Because in that moment, I just, I just feel so much guilt. I feel so much failure. I feel so much shame. I feel like I'm not good enough anymore. I just, I want to get rid of it, except, what does it do? It just heaps on more guilt and more shame and more failure, more self-hatred and more condemnation. It doesn't work. I got to be honest, as I, as I reflected on that list this week, I realized that I've done much of those things. Done, done many of those things throughout my life. In fact, I, I still struggle with some of those things. But more importantly, I'm capable of any of those things on that list and much more. There's nothing I'm not capable of doing if I give in and listen to the flesh. Because the reality is every one of us is one moment, one step, one bad choice away from any sin. There's, there's no sin that you and I aren't capable of doing. And, and I'll tell you, every time I've engaged in those sins, Every time I've, I've listened to the flesh and I've chosen to walk the way the world walks, it just leads to more shame than before. It leads to more guilt than before. I feel more alone than before. I feel more rejection than before. I experienced the death that God warned us against because that's what death looks like. Death here isn't talking about being separated from God or disconnected from God. Death here is the misery that you experience. And, and the best way I could describe it is just think about the last time you sinned. That death, that's what he's talking about. That, that's John 6, 63. The flesh profits nothing. The wages of sin is death, Romans uh, 6, 23. But the other side of it is, but God gives life. The Spirit offers life to us. And so that's what Paul's telling us here in this passage. He's telling his, his readers, don't walk the way the world walks. 
Avoid that that win-lose mentality, that me first, gotta get mine attitude and approach because all it leaves you is feeling empty, resentful, bitter, critical, disappointed, and empty. You have a lean soul, Psalm says. Instead, Paul says, as followers of Jesus, we have a choice. We have a, a different path to choose. We have a different way that we can walk. And that different way is trusting Jesus. Again, it's not about behaviors. It's not about performance. It's about trusting in the person of Jesus. Because he's offering us real life, real satisfaction. You see, think about it. The flesh offers us life. It says, if you do what I say, you'll find life at the end, except it's plastic fruit. It's, it's really just death that it offers. And so it's trying to conform you into this world. But it'll leave you feeling bitter, critical, and selfish. And the reality is we all know some Christians that way. We all know some Christians that, that are experiencing that bitterness and that critical heart and, and that empty, selfish attitude. And the reason is because... They've chosen to place their faith more in what the world says, more in how the world uh, offers life to us, and following the wisdom of this world rather than following the wisdom of Jesus. They, they look at what the world says and go, that makes sense. I'm going to follow that. And they're being conformed more and more into this world. But Jesus is saying, listen, follow me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And what I offer to you will truly satisfy you. There's a, there's a famous quote by the author C.S. Lewis, and I just think he summarized it so well. He says this, describing the situation, he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. See, too often we say, well, I, I just I had that desire to sin. It was just too big. It was too strong. It was too hard to say no to. And C.S. Lewis says, no, actually, your desire in that moment wasn't strong enough. It was too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Think about it. infinite joy, the life of Jesus. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, the world offers us something, but it's a mud pie. It's fake. It doesn't, doesn't, it feels as good as sand on your teeth. And yet we go for it over and over again because we're too quick to settle for what the world will offer us, the quick and easy. When an infinite joy awaits us, when this beautiful picnic by the ocean when this, this healthy roast beef dinner that satisfies awaits us, all that we're waiting for us is to trust Jesus, to follow him. And when we do, instead of that critical, empty, bitter, self-centered attitude, we are being conformed into his image. We're experiencing now his peace, his joy. We're experiencing love and encouragement and willing to even sacrifice for the benefit of others because we've been filled up to satisfied. And instead of following what the world says in terms of how you need to protect yourself, what we get to do is we get to allow Jesus the opportunity to protect us. 
We get to allow Jesus to provide for us. And what that means is it doesn't guarantee you'll never get hurt. Because the reality is you will. In fact, there are times where God will call you to lay down your life for others and experience hurt. And the world will think you're crazy. Jesus says, it's okay. Because I will provide and I will empower you to do it. Please understand, he doesn't always call you to be a martyr. He doesn't always call you to be beat up by others. But sometimes he may. Sometimes he may say, put yourself out there, but watch how I protect you. Watch how I provide for what you need. And then finally, while the flesh offers to us a very, very temporary fix, a very, very temporary comfort in escaping from what we're feeling and are struggling with, only to leave us with an emotional hangover, or worse, a physical one too, Jesus comes and he offers to us real healing, real comfort to the pain we're going through. He takes away the guilt. He takes away the shame. He overcomes, overpowers that nagging voice that says, you're not enough. You don't have what it takes. You're too much of a mess. God says, don't listen to it. God says, I'm so proud of you. God says, I love you, and I'm so impressed with how you're trusting me right now. Keep your eyes here. Keep looking at me. Don't worry about the world. Don't worry about the world saying, I got you. I got you. And I'll look after you. You're doing better than you think. I'm so proud that you're my child. We'll make it together. We'll do this together. And that's what he's offering us. Now remember, remember this instruction, it's not a measuring stick, right? You recovering legalists out there? Sue, Crystal, I'm calling you out this time. Sorry, I just, the Lord was putting you on my heart. So don't make this into a measuring stick. Don't use this to determine how good of a Christian are you based on are you walking like the world or are you walking like Jesus? That's not what it's about. Throw that idea out the window forever and all time. You have been accepted by Jesus if he's your Lord and Savior. If you have asked him to, to rescue you, then you are born again. The old Jew was crucified and buried. We're going to see that in more detail next week. You're now a new creation. And that new creation means you are good. 100% of the time, you are accepted. 100% of the time, you are holy and approved. 100% all the time. You can't improve upon it. You can't get better. You are perfect, 100%. And you are loved. You are deeply, deeply loved, 100% of the time. On your worst day, no matter how many times you followed the world's advice and you walked like the world, you are completely loved. Remember what we saw last time. This is about maturity and growing into who you already are. And so Paul says, don't mature like the world matures. Don't be conformed like the world. Don't follow the world's way of thinking. Instead, be transformed. Be conformed in the Christ's image by setting your mind on Jesus, by trusting him and following him. So this instruction is not about how good you are. It's an invitation to experience life in Jesus, to walk with Jesus to experience all that he has with you, to experience your birthright, and to allow Jesus to be to you everything you've desired and then some. 
infinite joy, infinite peace, infinite contentment, infinite love. That's what offers us. He offers us to you and I today. You see, the reality is only Jesus is the answer. But the other side of that is that's good news because life is better with Jesus. It simply is the case. It's true about salvation, but it's true about now. In this moment, life is better than when we walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've given to us and what, what you offer us, what we possess in possessing your Son, in possessing the Holy Spirit, that you've made us new. We no longer have those wicked hearts. We no longer have those, those hearts of stone. You've removed that heart of stone. You've given us a new spirit, a new heart. You've made us new creations. Now we have hope because that heart is now, you dwell in that heart. We have access to you all the time. And so I pray, Father, as we go each, each day, each moment, we remember that life is better with you. And we would trust you. We'd walk with you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being here with us. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.